Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is Episode 2, All Fired Up. In this episode, we shall discuss examples of chemical change known to humanity in prehistoric times. One of the distinguishing characteristics of people is that they make use of tools, although research has shown that apes, crows, elephants, octopuses, and dolphins, among others, have used tools as well. For our part, our prehistoric hominid relatives, starting several million years ago, crafted hammers, hand axes, scrapers, knives, harpoons, spears, needles and thread, clothing, sculptures, and more. They created their tools and products out of bone, stone, ivory, and leather. But in all these cases, the materials remained what they were. Stone was stone, and ivory was ivory. The materials didn't change from one into the other. Except when our ancient relatives used fire. Fire changed the consistency of food, making it softer and easier to chew and digest, as well as improving the flavor and sanitizing it from parasites and bacteria. Fire hardened certain rocks formed into weapons, toughening them for better killing of prey. Fire hardened clay into pottery and bricks, allowing storage of foods and other objects, as well as constructing artificial caves, that is, houses. Now, I don't mean to say that with fire you can change stone into leather, but with fire you can alter substantially the essential characteristics of your starting materials. And that is, at its heart, chemistry. The deliberate use of fire to alter material characteristics is termed the discovery of fire. Exactly when the discovery of fire happened is still a matter of debate among paleontologists. Most seem to agree that fire was deliberately used at least 300,000 years ago, with some evidence for over a million years ago. We shall talk more about fire in later episodes, but I will say here that fire has been a target of study almost continuously from ancient times through the present. Many early philosophers regarded fire as an actual object, but science has rejected that view for well over two centuries. Rather, chemists now regard fire as a byproduct or phenomenon visible during rapid, hot chemical change. A second chemical change harnessed by prehistoric peoples is fermentation. We now understand that fermentation uses growing microbes to chemically change certain compounds into other, more desired ones. Fermentation can be a natural process without human intervention. That is, various fruits can ferment in the wild. A variety of animals are known to indulge in these fruits and berries and get drunk. Others, such as certain bats and tree shrews, eat fermenting fruits, but don't appear to be intoxicated. But clearly human beings, like a lot of other living creatures, do get drunk from fermentation of fruit sugars into ethanol, a particular type of organic molecule that is only mildly toxic, but also gives an odd neurological effect in low doses. So perhaps people noticed certain fruits and berries undergoing fermentation. Perhaps they also noted that dairy products, if fermented in summer or tropical heat, still provided some nutritional benefit, or at least didn't kill you, and preserved the dairy from further degradation. 
Therefore, by about 10,000 BCE, there is evidence that people were deliberately letting various animal milks from sheep, goats, and so on ferment as preservation into yogurt. It turns out that the caloric value of a food increases with fermentation, providing extra calories for hungry people on prehistoric subsistence farming, and frees up amino acids originating in proteins for easier digestion. By 7000 BCE, people in what is now China began to brew fermented beverages. Their starting material was rice, honey, grapes, and hawthorn. This was the start of alcoholic fermentation. Around a thousand years later, the first winemaking is known from the Near East. Exactly when this happened is difficult to determine, but it is clear that fermentation into beverages, yogurts, cheeses, preserved fish, and more existed before the invention of writing. But the actual process by which foods fermented into other foods remained mysterious until less than two centuries ago, when the French scientist Louis Pasteur uncovered what happened. Until then, people speculated on all sorts of causes, perhaps even some kind of innate vital force. Pasteur discovered in 1857 that yeast microbes themselves were transforming the sugars in foods into alcohol. He also discovered that heating the food killed the microbes, thus preserving the food from rotting, and thus invented what's now called pasteurization. We shall have more to say about Pasteur when we get to the topic of organic chemistry. So now we know of two chemical methods of affecting chemical change in materials known to prehistoric peoples, heat and fermenting. Bread making, another example of fermentation, is known from the late Ice Ages onward. It became very popular with the rise of agriculture after the end of the Ice Ages. Baking bread thus involves both types of prehistoric chemical change that of fermentation of the dough to cause it to rise to some degree, plus application of fire to bake it and stop the fermentation. By the way, baking bread causes certain reactions among proteins and sugars in the dough, or added sugars or eggs in the dough. The reactions are now called Maillard reactions, creating molecules with the flavors of toast and other savory smells. Another prehistoric material discovered around the end of the Ice Ages was metal. The first use of metal is known around 9000 BCE with copper. Copper is among several types of metals known in prehistoric times, including gold, silver, iron from meteorites, and lead. The discovery that copper didn't shatter when hit like other rocks meant that it could be beaten and formed into objects. But copper does become brittle after repeated hammering, and another discovery, that of heating and then rapidly quenching the copper in cold water, a process called annealing, made copper extremely workable. Annealing is another chemical process that changes the crystal structure of the copper, but the scientific details were unknown to ancient people. To them, the result was the important thing. Prehistoric people made copper into knives and sickles. Use of native copper metal thus ushered in the last stage of the Stone Age, often called the Chalcolithic, mostly in Turkey, Iran, and India, as well as possibly in the upper peninsula of Michigan from around 5000 BCE. The name Chalcolithic is a combination of the Greek words chalkos, copper, and lithos, stone. 
In this time, most tools were stone, but a small and growing number of tools were made from copper. The name for the metal copper itself originates in Latin as cuprium ius, that is, Cypriot metal, because the source of the metal for ancient Rome was largely from that Mediterranean island. Gold was also known in prehistoric times, for it can be found occasionally as nuggets. Gold, however, is much rarer and softer than copper, so it was not appropriate for everyday tools and weaponry. Instead, it seems to have been reserved for the elite as jewelry. Gold, in fact, can be beaten and worked into fine foils and wires suitable for ornamental wear. The name gold is a very old one in English and is related, in fact, to the word yellow and the yolk of an egg. Lead was also occasionally found as a metal in prehistory. A small statue of lead dating to 6500 BCE was found in Turkey. But lead, too, is very soft and therefore not worth using for tools and weapons needing hardness. Lead, furthermore, is a dull gray color and neither shiny nor brightly colored, so not suitable for bling. The word lead is an old Germanic word possibly borrowed from or related to ancient Celtic. Iron was rare, but known to prehistoric peoples in the form of meteorites that people found randomly on the ground. Some meteorites were not just rock, but composed in various proportions of rock with iron. This nearly pure iron could be worked like copper and was even harder than copper. Therefore, iron was particularly prized for weaponry like spears and arrowheads. The etymology of the word iron shows that it's a Germanic word, ultimately thousands of years old. Yet, because native iron was rare, its use among prehistoric people was rare as well. But now we return to fire and heat. Sometime around 4000 BCE, shortly before the invention of writing, someone, perhaps also in the Near East, discovered that certain bluish rocks could be heated intensely to create copper. These bluish rocks were probably what we call malachite, or copper ore. This is the discovery of smelting metal that is, freeing the metal from an ore. Once the knowledge of these blue rocks combined with fire spread throughout the Near East and Asia, copper objects became much more common. The ancient Mesopotamians smelted copper. Egyptians used copper, mined in the Sinai Peninsula, to make cooking implements, mirrors, dishes, saws, and more. And using the relatively rare native metals was no longer necessary for metalworking, as long as a source for copper ore was available. To smelt copper ore, the ancients dug a pit in the ground, lined it with wood, and placed a crucible, a pottery pot filled with ore, into the pit. The wood was ignited and the heat released the copper metal from the ore, creating liquid copper. Another method was to use blowpipes to flow hot air across the top of the ore. Uh, We should note that burning wood into ash is also a chemical change associated with fire. Another prehistoric material created through the chemical change of fire was glazed pottery. Probably invented in the Near East, the Egyptians used glazed pottery, sometimes called faience, about 4000 BCE, in their pre-dynastic period to create shiny blue beads. They possibly did this to simulate turquoise whose color was highly prized. Clay was fired with a salt, natron, mixed with soda lime. Natron was found in dry lake beds in Egypt. We know it today as a naturally occurring mixture of sodium carbonate, also called washing soda, 
and around 17% sodium bicarbonate, also called baking soda. By the way, the English word natron ultimately stems from the ancient Egyptian name neteria, which through Latin also gives the chemical symbol for the modern metal sodium, Na, a major component of natron. For dyes and pigments, most prehistoric coloring matter was obtained from plants or rocks. One of the best known in prehistoric times all over the world was ochre, a clay-based material containing significant amounts of iron oxide. Ochre varies in color from yellow to red to deep purple. While evidently prehistoric peoples used ochre in its natural state, there is some evidence that some, even during the Ice Ages, were aware that heating ochre can bring about a color change, that is, a chemical change, to a red color. Many famous cave paintings were created using yellow ochre and red ochre. Alloys, or mixtures of metals, were just beginning to be discovered at the end of the Stone Age. The first alloy to be invented was bronze, a mixture of tin and copper. Most likely the bronze was accidentally created by using an impure copper ore containing tin ore. Evidence for early bronze has been dated to 4500 BCE in what is now Serbia, with discovery of a piece of tinfoil bronze and a ring. An advantage of this tin bronze is that it melts at a lower temperature than copper, so is easier to cast into molded shapes. Bronze is also harder than copper, so it can be more useful to make tools. Soon thereafter, some bronze artifacts are known from Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and China. Bronze also has a yellow color similar to gold, unlike the reddish hue of copper. The word tin is an old Germanic word, while the word bronze is from medieval Latin, maybe ultimately from old Persian. We will talk more about bronze later in the early historic period. We can summarize these two basic methods of chemical change that our prehistoric forebears used, fermenting and fire. Those two methods were applied to practical results, brewing beer, making wine, baking bread, making bronze, winning copper from its ore, heating dye to change its color, and early glazing of pottery, not to mention pottery and bricks themselves, and cooking food. We also remember that these examples are practical, not theoretical chemistry. Because the era we are talking about was prehistoric, before writing existed, we do not know what our ancestors thought about these methods. We do not know if they considered explanations for chemical change, be they scientific or mythological. In fact, there was no difference between scientific and mythological in this era, for science didn't exist. Perhaps these processes were just done, they just happened, and who could understand the mysteries of the world anyway? At this point in our chemical history, we have no writing to help us understand their thoughts, and therefore only surviving artifacts as evidence for ancient chemistry. Fire, in particular, will be a topic of recurring interest in chemistry, both because of its lively appearance, but also its use in applying heat to make chemical reactions. Even today, in some chemistry laboratories, you can find Bunsen burners that burn natural gas to create a flame and thereby heat to run a chemical reaction. What heat is required several thousand years of chemical experimentation to explain. 
The transfer of heat from one object to another and why that helps to run a chemical reaction is the study of modern chemical thermodynamics, or movement of heat. We shall discuss these topics much later in our story. In the next episode, we shall examine chemical knowledge at the beginnings of history, the onset of the Bronze Age, when the first written records appear. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 